You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Gold is hostage to two things right now. Number one is interest rates. My belief is that long-term interest rates still are going to have at least one more significant spurt higher, which means that will keep gold under pressure. Gold has been very much joined at the hip with the fate of the treasury market. When long-term yields move up, gold moves down and vice versa. And this is the second thing, Bill, that is keeping gold down. And that is this inflation we have, which first, and you and I have talked about this before, needs to be understood in the context of asset prices. It's benefited everything else. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Bill Powers. And in today's show, you're going to be hearing from Chris Temple of nationalinvestor.com. We talked to Chris about every four to six weeks to get his perspective. Chris, welcome back onto the show. Last time you were here, you told my audience, which loves gold, not to load up on gold stocks yet. It wasn't the time. So six weeks later, what's your updated perspective on how we should approach the gold equities? I've softened, softened my tone a little bit. I still have a little bit of a hedge bill in my recommended portfolio in, in the form of a couple of the inverse ETFs. Uh, gold is hostage to two things right now. Number one is interest rates. My belief is that long-term interest rates still are going to have at least one more significant spurt higher, which means that will keep gold under pressure. Gold has been very much joined at the hip with the fate of the treasury market. When long-term yields move up, gold moves down and vice versa. Secondly, and this is what a lot of people don't understand about the whole inflation debate, as I have called it, I, I, I see people and hear people all the time scratching their head. We've got all of these inflation fears and everybody's talking about it. And a lot of people are skeptical that the Fed understands the extent of the problem. What is making gold and also rant? And this is the second thing, Bill, that is keeping gold down. And that is this inflation we have, which first, and you and I have talked about this before, needs to be understood in the context of asset prices. It's benefited everything else. So if you're a generalist investor or a professional money manager, and the inflation that the Fed indeed is unleashing benefits copper, lithium, uranium, energy anew. The tech stocks, which are finally getting some comeuppance, the doggy coins and bitcoins and cryptocurrencies of the world. You, you, the last thing you're going to do is put it in gold. All right. Gold will take off again. And, and, and we're getting closer to this, I sense. Gold will take off again when the inflation no longer benefits these other areas. When the sugar high that the economy has, when a speculative money that has gone into copper, recently, which is great long-term, but is too frothy right now for my taste, and a lot of other stuff, when all of a sudden this goes away. Because if you remember, folks, gold tripled from the bottom in the wake of the financial crisis at the end of 2008 until it hit its then all-time high of over 1,900 an ounce uh, in the late summer of 2011. And the reason it did was because you had the Fed with had unleashed quantitative easing, they kept interest rates at nothing, printing all this money, and there was still great skepticism as to whether the economy could recover. So that monetary stimulation wasn't that clearly benefiting everything else yet. But when it did, that's when people sold gold. Didn't mean the inflation had stopped. 
it meant that the way that the market perceives it benefiting different asset classes or not did. And the same thing has to happen now to take gold from a caution light back to a green light. We need to see something significant that casts aspersions on all of these other things, some legitimate, some not, that have gone up in price recently. And when that happens, even as the Fed keeps printing money, that's when gold rises to the top again. We're going to get there probably before 2021 is over, but I wouldn't give you a green light yet. You mentioned copper. Copper is at $4.80. Uh, what's your near-term projection for copper? Is it $6 first or back to $4 first? I, I have very little doubt that we're going to go back to $4 first. I think copper has got some great long-term fundamentals, Bill. But in the last week, you've had two news items come out that I discuss in my upcoming issue that the market has completely ignored. Number one, Chinese smelters have just cut there or had cut by the authorities the amount of uh, material they're going to run through smelters by nearly 10 percent for the balance of the year that's one hit uh, statistics just came out from industry group that we're actually looking at surpluses now for copper this year and next year yet the price has continued to go up because of this strong narrative we've had copper is the new oil you've had you've heard goldman sachs say that you've heard others say that we're going to go from 10 to twenty thousand dollars a ton for copper yeah several years down the road we will but but near term i think this has got too far ahead of itself one of the charts i'll be including in my discussion on copper bill is going to be the chart of the oil price uh, in 2007 and 2008 which is a which is a poster child of how even if you've got some fundamental story within it speculators and too much liquidity in markets can make things stupid for a while within i think it was seven or eight months time you had the oil price spike to 140 dollars a barrel and then crashed to $30 a barrel. And neither of those extremes had anything to do with the supply demand situation for crude oil. It was all this hot money because thanks to the Fed, and now they've really done it. You've got traders out there with more money than brains that think they're bulletproof. They're get, they're, a little bit of blood is being drawn today as we're recording this. Um, but that's what I think has happened to some extent recently to copper. I think things have gotten ahead of themselves. Long term, all else being equal, yes, the whole green economy story, the, the long term uh, supply shortfall, yes, that's all legitimate. But you got to be really brave or have a long time horizon to be very heavily into copper right now, in my opinion. If you're looking at what happened with the, the pipeline in the southeast of our nation and how that's affecting gas prices, what type of short-term trades might you see as an opportunity as a result of this scenario? I would have gone long just crude oil itself, maybe, or gasoline futures, most definitely, if, if I was having, and, and my newsletter in its current form doesn't get involved in day trading and stuff like that. Later this year, we're going to have an enhanced membership that does do some of that. Well, I'm not unveiling that quite yet. Um, but those are the kind of things you could do. Otherwise, yeah, it's tempting to buy some of the equities that are still relative to the rest of the market, undervalued. But if we have coming in the next few weeks, what, what my gut tells me 
And almost in a blink of an eye, the NASDAQ's going to drop 10 to 20%. A lot of other things are going to back off. Then I don't care what it is. Everything is going to get hit short-term, at least for a while. And, and that will bring back the demand fears again into the oil patch. You know, we're pretty much at seasonally the peak time of year anyway, where people buy the energy complex in anticipation of, you know, Memorial Day is uh, nearly upon us and the beginning of the summer driving season. By the time you get to the middle of summer, they're looking to sell. So we may be compressing that cycle uh, this year. I, I think that the energy complex, generally speaking, is too risky to chase right now. And I say that I've got to throw in a mea culpa along with accomplishments where gold is concerned and my accurate calls on the two peaks in gold last year. I totally screwed up <laughs> the, the energy patch. I mean, I was right. You remember this. We've talked about it since and talking about how everything was going to collapse early last year and oil went negative for a while, actually. I did later in the rebound advocate a few uh, uh, recommendations. We sold them way too early. And, you know, aside from that exception, I've been AWOL from this uh, energy bounce. I'll wait for it to pull back again and then rethink things. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well capitalized, has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. On that note, Chris, one uh, point I'd like to get your insights on, uh, letting your winners run. You know, you didn't let the winners run there. Uh, is that how you've made the most of your wealth in the resource sector, though, is letting your winners run? Like Piedmont Lithium, I think you're up tenfold right now. Like, how did you play that run? Well, look, most of the time, and you've, you've always got to ask yourself the question as an investor, and it's on a case-by-case -case basis. There is, in my opinion, and the way I do things anyway, there's no hard and fast rule. And I'm going to use that as an example. I'm glad you brought it up. Just today, I told people to trim back some more on Piedmont Lithium, not the first time we've done it, to get back closer to what would be a normal starting position. Because, yeah, I was pounding the table on that thing, as you remember, last summer at six bucks or whatever it was, and it hit 80. Now we're getting back to 60. It's going to drop more, along with most other battery metal stocks. I had some other recommendations on those this morning to take some profits. And, and it's all guilt by association because Tesla is losing a lot more of its air of its share price. Look, Tesla is a wonderful transformative company. Elon Musk is a crazy genius, uh, quirky guy. He's entertaining as hell. <laughs> okay. But there's no justification fundamentally yet for that stock to be where it's been for a while. And as it pulls back with this blow off, I think that we're seeing unfold now in the markets, uh, everything else is going to go with it. So yeah, for a while you get out of Piedmont after we've already had a game. Let me flip though and tell you that even with some near-term risk, you've got to stick with stories that haven't had that kind of a move yet. My other favorite lithium play is Frontier Lithium in Canada. Uh, they've had a nice run. The stock has pulled back a fair bit recently. I don't care. I'm telling people, write it out, and if anything, buy more. And we're up on that nicely 
in the last several months, not as much as we were. I mean, it went from like 25, 30 cents a share. It was up to $1.20 or something like that. Now we've been back to 80 cents. Buy more. Because unlike Piedmont, whose big move had a lot to do with their offtake agreement with Tesla that they announced last summer, Frontier has not made such an announcement yet, but I got news for you folks. Number one, the grade of their spodumene is probably twice what Piedmont's is. The size of that district dwarfs potentially what Piedmont has. And I don't say that because to disparage Piedmont at all. I'm saying that to tell you just how undiscovered still a home run Frontier Lithium, I believe, will prove to be in the end. And on that subject too, there's been some press recently and this is something I've got a story about it on the front page of my website. I'll have more between now and the end of the month in a special issue on green energy. But people are starting to wake up to the fact, and, and there's a balancing act here, of how, you know, the green energy, all this stuff sounds good. But guess what, folks? Mr. Musk does not have a magic extrusion machine where doggy coins go in one end and it spits out Teslas on the other. Carbon free, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Teslas are, this is not a carbon free thing right now, generally speaking. Okay. Some individual components are or will be, but it takes lithium, it takes copper, it takes nickel, it takes cobalt, it takes steel, it takes a lot of different things to manufacture these vehicles. And then you got to ask the question later. Well, what do you what do you plug plug it into when you charge it up? Where does that electricity come from? The air? Is this another magic machine, or do power plants have to be responsible for you recharging your Tesla? So this is a debate that that I I've said for a long time, and I've got one foot sometimes in the environmentalist camp and one foot in the extractive industry camp. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Some people act as if they are including, unfortunately, some people in the Biden administration that are undermining already the work that Jennifer Granholm and others, she's the energy secretary, are trying to do to have the U.S. build a start to finish supply chain for not just electric vehicles, but for all the components, uh, you know, critical metals, the whole green economy and all this kind of thing. So I say all that to point out that when you look at a Piedmont lithium, when you look at a frontier lithium, their lithium is hosted in what's called spodumene. It's a hard rock deposit. In relative terms, it has a very small environmental footprint. Okay, The Thacker Pass lithium project in Nevada has already been stopped, essentially, by the feds because it is going to be an eyesore. People don't realize that a lot of these things, these salt flats and so forth, you're talking about massive, massive strip mining that is going to make it look like the biggest open pit copper mine. And, and I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on it. Look, there's still a lot of hypocrisy about that. You know, I don't think it's fair for us as a country to say, oh, not in my backyard. I don't want this here. It's okay with me if some 10-year-old colored kid in the Congo is up to his armpits in mud and chemicals so that I can feel nice to have my woke green 
electric vehicle, but not have to see how the sausage is made. All right, we're going to have to come to grips with this. We're going to have to understand that, you know what, some of this should be done in our country. It can be done safely in our country. And I think, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, if Jennifer Granholm was the final word on all of this, I would have no concerns at all. She's a smart lady, understands resources, understands labor, understands manufacturing. But there are others within the administration she works for who are flamethrowers that want to kill any extractive project that comes along. And, and there's there's got to be a resolution to this because otherwise this whole push to critical minerals and green energy is in some trouble. In the whole green energy, clean production movement, there is talk of a two-tiered pricing system. So for example, if copper, a certain copper deposit produces lower carbon emissions and has a better um, working environment for the unions that work there, better relations with the local people, that copper could be priced higher than copper that comes from a, a different scenario with more pollution in the environment and less uh, good relations with the local people. Do you see this materializing? Do you think there's enough political <clears throat> and financial will to create a two-tiered system within copper, nickel, and all these EV batteries? I'm not sure it will be done that way, Bill, but I'll tell you the way it will be done. And this was on a drawing board, and you and I may have talked about this before. I've written about it. But way back in the 90s, George Schultz and Jim Baker, two old Republican administration hands going all the way back to, uh, in, in Schultz's case, at least the Nixon years, um, they put together a game plan for a whole system of carbon credits and carbon taxation, carbon dividends, and so forth. And I have said, and this is where the Biden administration has dropped a ball so far in two big ways when it has an opportunity to really reinvigorate the economy and push all these things going forward. One is infrastructure, one is these carbon credit things. We, we need these for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that this is going to allow Wall Street to help securitize all of these resource industries, the food chain for the critical minerals uh, uh, technologies and whatnot within the US, the green economy and everything. This has been talked about for years. Europe is ahead of us in this regard. We probably will be playing catch up inevitably, where I think it would be too complicated to have the different pricing on copper and nickel and whatnot. But the way you accomplish much the same thing and make it less complicated is that you have these carbon credits and dividends. If you can demonstrate that you have no net carbon output, say, in your nickel mine, for sake of discussion, then you will get a tax credit. If, however, you're still using diesel generators, uh, just to use a, a, a simple example, or you cannot show that you are that you are reducing carbon emissions or you don't meet whatever threshold, then you pay a tax. If you can demonstrate that you have net uh, carbon, you know, give back to the you know situation, you'll get a dividend from the government. So I'm, I, I don't want to make this too muddled and too complicated, maybe you already have. But I do think this is coming, not so much in this two-tiered pricing as much uh, the way I've seen it, but in this whole system of carbon credits and taxes and whatnot, because this is even, you know, whatever the other parts of it, the general road that we're on of carbon reduction and giving, you know, p penalizing people that don't meet timetables, rewarding those that do, that that ship has sailed.
and, uh, and, and it's going to impact our lives and impact the markets for a lot of years beyond our lifetimes. And we've pointed out on this show, whether you believe in the, the need to lower carbon emissions or not, it's a reality as an investor right. that you have to acknowledge. Uh, last question before you go, regarding the Biden administration's proposed capital gains tax raise as high as 44%, which is absolutely crazy. And they've proposed to get rid of the carried interest benefit or loophole, which has uh, really benefited Wall Street and fund managers. Uh, do you think this is going to happen? And if it does, how will that affect the stock market this year and next year? Well, if those things actually were to pass in uh, in a version that Biden could sign, they will very negatively impact the stock market. Um, I, I find it a little bit interesting that a lot of people recently claim that some of the weakness in stocks that's unfolding has been because people are worried about a capital gains tax. Well, it could still be an effective in 2021. So if they were worried, I don't know why they weren't selling stocks after Biden wasn't declared the winner last year. But that's another story. Um, but that and especially the carried interest. Yes, it benefits Wall Street. But I'll tell you who else it benefits is farmers and small business owners. And I believe in my gut that there are enough Democrat Party senators in heavily ag agriculture states, especially, who, when they realize how many more family farms it's going to annihilate, and there aren't that many left to annihilate, uh, thanks to government policies from both parties for decades now, I don't think it's going to make it. Or there's going to be some kind of carve-outs. I, I could see them trying to repackage this and isolating it on certain kinds of gains and certain kinds of businesses and leaving out businesses below a certain value threshold as far as gains that are passed on at death on those businesses and certainly on farms. If they were to carve those things out, it'd have a somewhat better chance. But you've got pushback already from a few Democrat senators. Joe Manchin, of course, as most people that follow politics know, is taking the lead on this and this infrastructure monstrosity that's been floated. And hopefully there's going to be cooler heads prevail and there'll be some dealing done that will make more economic sense and not just be, you know, leftist politics that we're that we're legislating. Excellent. All right. Well, Chris's website is nationalinvestor.com. You can head over there. He has write-ups, uh, blog posts, if you will, or articles that you can read. And to learn more about his subscription service and get his uh, real-time via email insights, you can learn more at nationalinvestor.com. Chris, thanks for sharing your insights with my audience today. And we'll be touching base with you in about a month. My pleasure. Take care, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. 
I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks and don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met, you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.